Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This week we're Review 2-ing Zeropa. Daddy's gonna pay! This is a Review 2 first. I have always hated this song. Oh, what? Screaming Cynthia Bono and Sean Penn, of all people. Zeropa is Eno's monster. So you join us again, we're up to U2's 8th studio album, Zeropa. This is of course the show where we go track by track through every single one of U2's albums, giving our thoughts and feelings thereon. Tyler, what have U2 been doing since Actung Baby? So we last left U2 in November 1991. Uh, we're going to pick up in February 1992 as the Zoo TV tour starts. In March, you two hire a belly dancer to join them on stage for the performance of Mysterious Ways. That woman later marries The Edge, becoming the guitarist's second and to date final wife. In May, Zoo TV comes to Europe, and with it comes ideas of a strange little EP. In July, a remix of Even Better Than The Real Thing achieves a higher position in the charts than The Real Thing. So the remix of Even Better Than A Real Thing is even better than The Real Thing. You can't make this stuff up. August is when you two go into the outside broadcast stage of Zoo TV, incorporating flying tribants that crash together in mid-air and huge screens to ensure sensory overload for each member of the audience. In February 1993, Bono, Larry and Edge join Johnny Cash on stage for The Wanderer. In May, Bono debuts his character Mr. McFisto, on one of the Zoo TV dates. And now July 5th, 1993, one year and eight months after Actung Baby, Zoo Roper is released. And it is one of the most sonically interesting classic U2 albums. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that's a good way of putting it as well. It is sonically interesting. Now, whether that's successful or not is... I guess the thing that we're going to chew over throughout this uh, episode. It's different in pretty much uh, every way you can imagine. And if you're if you're the type of person that struggles to get on board with a lot of the um, pseudo-religious uh, moral ideas that you two incorporate very, very often, this is pretty much um, a go-to album. If you don't like this, then you're not going to like anything you two do. Uh, because this is about as far away from the traditional image of U2 that they, they ever get. Hmm. I think the time span that you just set out also comes into this so much because this is it's a crazy amount of time for you know comparative to the way that we would expect U2 to release an album these days and the time it takes. I mean, to actually turn around an album in, is it under two years? Uh, yeah, one year, eight months. To do that is it does seem crazy and the question, I guess, hangs over this album is, is that time span a good thing? Is that where the character of the record comes across? The fact that they're just forced to get things done? Or, well, not forced, but the fact that they're getting things done so quickly. Well, the the story is they had a break between legs of the tours and were, as a band would normally go home, spend time with a family, generally refresh. Bono and The Edge had a lot of new ideas, wanted to push the themes that they started to create and play around with in 
Acton Baby, wanted to see how far they could take that, and also incorporating what they've learned from the Zoo TV tour, that sensory overload that I alluded to in the introduction. Okay, so we know that the time span was crazy with this album. Um, got a little quote from Edge where he's saying, everyone's head was spinning. Kind of a, an interesting reference there. Um, everyone's head was spinning, so we thought, why not keep that momentum going? Edge was, as you mentioned before, looking for things to do to occupy him while this, you know, his marriage had broken down. So I think going back into the studio, tinkering with everything was a real important outlet for Edge during this whole kind of Acton Baby period. You know, it's a good Baby for anybody um, going through a divorce. Hire yourself a belly dancer. <laughs> or get lost in your uh, amazing recording studio that we all have. So Flood says that the production of this album was absolute lunacy. You know, the whole creation of it. We'll probably talk about this as we go through. And I think that's, it's really interesting that Edge actually has a producing credit on this album. So Danny Lanois is not present here, officially. Our official producers are Flood, Brian Eno, and The Edge, which gives this album such a consistent and interesting feel. I think Edge is really present on this. We'll get to Numb, obviously, later on. Well, because it was such a short time frame, the recording process, you, you get this sense of continuity with the production team. It, it was a very short period of time to commit to. So take, for exam, uh, example, Acton Baby, which took over a year to write and record. Mm. This was a matter of months, like maybe three or four months just in the break. And they were still on tour while this was happening, so they'd have to, you know, they would be playing in the evening and then coming back, you know, always visiting the studio, you know. Um, I think that happened towards the later stage of the album, but just the sheer amount of effort and work that it would take to do this, and they don't have to kill themselves to put this album out. No one is no one is demanding or even necessarily expecting another album straight away. And I think there's an interesting moment that Edge is talking about, I think, in, in one of the interviews where he says, you know, oh, we, we might actually have, you know, enough material for a full album here. So... The production on this album was really interesting, the fact that it was created so quickly. And there was an interesting review that I was reading in preparation for this from Stephen Dalton. And he said that, you know, this is kind of the mutant cousin of Acton Baby, and he wasn't entirely sold on Zeropa, to say the least. And he said there is enough here to justify the album's existence. Just. Okay. Now, my question would be, okay, they put this out. This is 10 tracks. It is an album in terms of, you know, in terms of length. But does this album have enough to say to actually justify its place? Is it just surfaces and mirrors and studio trickery and buzzes and bells and whistles? Or does it have actual depth? And that's the question that I want to ask all the way through this album. Well, if I can just answer that very quickly here, it's it's an experiment. So it doesn't have to have the same story or the same depth of story or narrative that an, a previous U2 albums have. Uh, they are experimenting with different sounds, different influences, writing about not necessarily more interesting topics, but topics and ground that haven't been covered previously by you two. Hmm. So, I mean, they're reacting mainly to media, aren't they? I mean, if there's if there's it's this onset of you know, as you said, sensory overload, video, music, twenty four hour you know cable TV that kind of thing. They've been a very postmodern band, and you know, talking about themselves. Not just, I don't know what the opposite would be, really, with that. Well, I guess it's the opposite to the kind of thing that they were doing in the Joshua Tree, which did feel very earnest, did feel very kind of, you know, simple in song, in song structure. And they were interested in 
stable emotions in truths, that kind of thing. Whereas now the, the, all the production reflects that obsession with surface and with celebrity and with depthlessness. But my question is, does this album have the same amount of depth as it does surface? And I'm, I don't want to make my mind up on that right away, you know, going yeah. into the review. But there's only one way to find out. Uh, that's to go track by track. So, from innocence to experience, wander with us through the streets paved with gold as we review to Zuropa. Track one, Zuropa. Tyler, what are your thoughts? My initial thoughts about this are the the intro is eerily similar to Streets. Where the Streets Have No Name mm. from the Joshua Tree. But whereas Streets was celebrating a more traditional rock and roll style, a type of music, particularly in a live setting, Zuropa is celebrating sonic experimentation, mm-hmm. melodic freedom, and lyrical intrigue. So why, while it's good that it harkens back to possibly the most famous song at that point. Yeah. Um, it's very they're very much making a statement of this is a new era of U two. Yeah. We're still we're still very much U two, but this album is going to go in a direction we've never been before. As an introductory track to the album, mm. amazing. Like yeah. really really strong statement, um, and a really really good start. And I think that you're bringing up the fact that whereas Streets is kind of earnest, this is sort of playful and intriguing. And that's why, lyrically speaking, they're combining all of those different advertising slogans together. And not actually, they're not being you two writing a song about advertising. They're literally just stating them next to each other. So right from the start of Zeropa, you've got that idea of media and advertising and sonic and... Um, Overload, basically. So yeah. they're just sticking them all together. These 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 phrases. Well, streets is supposed to be this really good thumping rock track, uh, played by really a really good band, really good musicians. Uh, Zeropa, the track, by the way, really deconstructs that idea of the song in almost a Brian Eno esque way, but mm. not to an annoying. Standard like we've previously discovered on uh, discovered on tracks like Fourth of July and Great track Elvis Presley in America terrible track yeah I see you saying that I think Eno had a massive I think he did cut and paste this together into the studio um, the different sections of the song it does have no one would ever sit down and write this song in this way from scratch it's it's very much a product of the studio and of collage and editing but it's still amazing there is still a song underneath it well, it's a collaborative eff- effort this mm. this track um maybe in the 80s when eno was trying to get you two to do this kind of thing maybe the band just weren't at the the, the maturity level yeah. or of a musical understanding level that they needed to be to converse with someone like brian eno um, Perhaps he's very much a mad scientist in terms of. Um, I'll add that to the list of, uh, of labels you've given. Brian I think Eno. Brian Eno would be very happy to be called the mad scientist of you two. Yeah, sure. Um, but whereas he was trying to get you to to experiment as early as the unforgettable fire, here he creates Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, 
Zuropa is Eno's monster. Yeah. You two and Eno are finally on a a level where they can collaborate and put different ideas together and create something spectacular. Yeah, and that's the thing to to stress, I guess, that if this is a creation that is somewhat Frankensteinian, it's an amazing one and it works so well. I love how this feels so um, sciencey and fuzzy and full of electricity. You can feel like going all the way through. Yeah, the there's song. a stat, there's a static effect throughout the first four minutes of the song, and I don't re- I don't realize that this song is six minutes long. No, it's another it one of those travels really well where you just it starts and again like streets, it's over before you know it. I, I really like it when you two go down this sort of space age, um, sci-fi kind of route. I mean, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but um, there's an album later on that sort of seems to promise that and they don't deliver on it. But Zeropa delivers fully and this sort of halo of like technological weirdness surrounds this song. It's such a, it's such a great song. And also the, the lyrics, Bono is able to, um, to have this freedom, the kind of freedom that I think he gained during this kind of period at following Rattle and Hum. But to sing, you know, the lyrics about having no compass and no map and even no religion, we've travelled so far away from the kind of earnest, straight down the line, you know, um, Bono that we had previously as a lyric writer. Do you know how you're supposed to feel when you listen to this? Or, or at least how you feel when you listen to this? It changes every time, I think. Yeah, and I think that's deliberate. Hmm. I think you, it, there's supposed to be this confusion. They mess around with this idea of confusion and information overload. Hmm. Um, but I, re- I really noticed it this time, particularly when that static fades out after four minutes or so, you get this explosion in, within the song and it's a, re- it's a feel good moment, but it's kind of, you don't really know what you're happy about. Yeah. It's confident, but it's not trying to sell you a particular idea. It's sort of, I, I just feel like Bond has been let loose with this, you know, and yeah. particularly when they're saying lines about dream out loud, it is, it is quite you know, general. It's quite abstract. Well, the line that struck me most of all was the line, don't know the limit, the limit of what we got. Now, my question there is, is Bono questioning whether they have pushed this phase of self-mockery and social awareness too far? Mm. It is it a gamble to bring out Zuropa? Mm. I... I I, I, it must have, there must have been some uncertainty there, but they seem very confident in this album. Well, I think there's, I think there is a confidence in sections of it, and but there is also an awareness shown throughout. I think of the the band understand that what they're doing and what the, what kind of image they're presenting, and that they are in some way deconstructing what it is to be a rock and roll star. Um, again, don't want to spoil by going ahead too far. But there's tracks which do that so actively through this through this album, and it'll be really interesting to to look at. I think. So here we go, track two, Babyface. What are your initial thoughts on this? Bono's vocals are so different to the previous album. We there is a lot of similarities between Act and Baby and Zoo Rope, but they definitely inhabit the same kind of space. They were brought together really successfully on, on you know, Zoo TV. But Bono is doing something quite different here in terms of his vocals because he's got a warmth and an intimacy to him throughout the whole album. There's a couple of deviations from that, which we'll come to. But broadly speaking, Bono is a lot 
a lot more kind of toned down, a lot more warm and a lot closer. Does that make sense? And this is a song which shows in, that. I in think. this track, I would say that's very true. There are instances on this album where that is less so the case. Yeah. But in terms of in terms of Babyface, for me at least, this is just one of those great examples of how extraordinarily different this album as a whole mm. is and is going to be. If if this is if we're pretending this is our first listen, most U two albums I think were made for live a live concert setting. Zuropa, um, although it is very experimental, it's much more insular as an album. But when I listen to it, I get the impression that they. It's an easier album to listen to, just on your own, you know, with some good headphones on. Mm. Uh, it's it's improved that way, but I think they meant it to be this big remixable collection of songs that would get people into clubs dancing to U two tracks. Really, I don't get a dance feel from from. I think that might be what they wanted from this experimentation. It's not what happened, mm. but this is, I think, the only example of a of a U two album that is designed to be listened to on your own and not as part of a group yeah. and, and not in a huge live setting. And that's why it doesn't have those, you know, broadly speaking, that's why it doesn't have those huge gestures, you know. Um, and it feels a lot more intimate than a song like, say, I don't know, Acrobat or something like that, where you've got Bono really pushing his 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 voice to the limit and trying to get power through it. This is a very different approach that's taken here. And there's so much going on in terms of the the weird textures that are all used. You've got kind of these flanger kind of sounds, the fact that guitars sort of spin from one headphone to the other. This is why I think you can't really listen to this casually. This song would seem so odd on a radio, you know, just walking past it. But if you take the time to actually get into it and observe it closely, and that sounds a bit weird, observing it closely. but It's it actually rather relaxing, this, this song. Um... What's your favourite? Well, th but thematically, that's kind of weird because, and I didn't realise this on, you know, my early kind of listens to it. But going back through the lyrics, it's all about voyeurism and being able and control. So it's quite sweet. You've got that almost childlike piano all the way through, but then it's all about, you know, I've got slow motion on my side, um, watching your bright blue eyes in the freeze frame. I've seen them so many times. It's all about observation. So it's it's such an odd odd song in terms of its tone. I mean, do you get that kind of voyeurism from the song? Voyeurism is something I've never really thought about this album. Not this album, just this song, just Baby uh, Just this song. Um, no, I, I can't say I've ever... Have you read that somewhere? Is is that well, intentional? Well, what, what I get... I mean, I just going back through the lyrics and seeing how certain lyrics sync up with the sounds that are being used. So Edge is using that sound where... It, you know, or, or, I know it's very difficult to say who's responsible for what on this. I mean, we've got Flood, Brian Eno, and Edge producing, uh, Eno contributing loops and samples and all that other kind of thing. But you've got the sounds that sound, you know, almost like kind of mic microscopic zooming in, zooming out, that kind of, um, that, those kind of sounds, accompanied by all these lyrics about watching someone and having slow motion and, you know, seeing someone on television. That's the, the voyeuristic aspect I get to this. But, okay, yeah. but, but the thing is, you wouldn't normally get to that because the song sounds so 
you know, kind of loving, you know, and, and innocent all the way through it. Yeah, it, it does. Um, I, I, next time I listen to it, I'll have to think about that voyeurism aspect. But my favourite part of this song is underneath the chorus is that bap, 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 bap. Yeah, I only noticed that I, this time. I really like that. It sounds like some kind of... Um, <laughs> it's a strange post-rock choir. Mm. Um, there's there's a great melody in there, but it, it doesn't sound like you expect a choir to sound like. Yeah. Um, that, that, for me, just really stood out as one of... A real nice highlight on the on the album. Well, I think if you took if you took apart all of the individual parts to this song, and just listened to them individually, it would be so odd. But then they all seem to come together in that effective kind of way. Finding melody uh, out of the unmelodic. Yeah. Numb. And I have a bit of a confession to make about this song. Oh, sounds juicy. Not really. I didn't used to like this song. <gasps> or rather, I know that's right, put that monocle back in. I didn't get the song is probably a better way of, of explaining it. So it wasn't even a matter of kind of like or dislike. I just didn't understand what was going on. And fans of this show will remember that we had a guest in our Rattle and Hum episode. And this was one of the albums. He was called Vinny. And I say he was called. He's, he's still, he's with still us. alive. Yeah. <laughs> he's not in the studio. He's no. not actually with us. No. Um, he's gone back to the big smoke. Yeah. Now, this was one of the albums, Zeropa, that I convinced Vinny to, I thought, you know, suggested to him it might be a good idea for him to purchase it, so then I wouldn't have to purchase it. And then what I would do is I would burn the album onto a CD and sort of, you know, take it away. And Zeropa was one of the albums that I Give him the burned copy back. (laughs) But such was my dislike or my not getting of this song that I didn't actually bother to include Numb on... Zeropa on my burned copy. So my copy of Zeropa went Zeropa, Babyface, Lemon. Track three, Lemon, with no numb. So I I didn't understand this. And I think it's it's a good track to play to people who think they know entirely what you two sound like. You know, oh you two, that's the band that does Silver Five What I'm Looking For and With or Without You, Beautiful Day, Boom, Done. This is such a different song. What do you think of it, Tyler? Yeah, I I think this is U2 at the most industrial. Do they ever go further than this? I, I can't think of a, an think, example. I think that's a, it's a reasonable claim to make that. I mean, there are literally songs, uh, sounds from industry in here, and particularly in the remixes of, of this, uh, which yeah. are all... I love going through the remixes and just seeing the, the differences. Released them. as a VHS single. Yes. Not as a CD single. Which I have a copy of. I also have a copy of. Um, <laughs> Pointless bragging about yeah, something r- that ridiculous. doesn't matter. But uh, it's like, uh, well, it signifies that idea of consumerism. Mm-hmm. People will buy any old tat. tat. Yeah. And we bought it, and probably without realising at the time, we would have got that secondhand somewhere and put it in. More of an effort, really, than putting a CD on. Yeah. Um, but a more rounded experience of watching the video... Mm. And you know that that idea of voyeurism mm. from Babyface, you know, Sensory you actually overload. had to sit there and watch this. Yeah, it wasn't just a piece of music; it was presented as a visual experience as well. But going back to your point about not fully understanding it when we were younger, I, I think I'm probably guilty of that. We were really young when we got into U2; they're quite yeah. a mature band for anybody to try and get into. 
at, at such a young age. So this song, I probably liked it. I remember painting my room at my mum and dad's house when I was about 14, uh, and I was listening, and Zeropa was my soundtrack. Mm. Um, and I remember liking the album then, but I, pr- I probably just didn't understand it. I suppose you can get a good workman-like rhythm to Edge's, you know, him just listing all these things, and you can be, you know, up and down with the paintbrush. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it might work. So, yeah, this song, it it didn't impact on me when I was a kid because I probably didn't understand it. I know I didn't understand it. But now I have a much more... I'm a, well, like, I would a, a greater idea about the world and com- consumerism and everything. I'm not saying I know everything because I, I don't, but I know what they were singing about. Well, that a, was going to be my greater, question to a greater extent. Now, what 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 didn't we get at that earlier age? Is it the fact that this is all about how a certain kind of culture that is saturated with media images, you know, e- even even then it's only got more saturated. How that makes you feel hollow and numb and you can't react to anything because all of the things that edge says this isn't a manifesto in the sense that it has any coherence a lot of these um lines contradict each other and it's just such an interesting experience to go through that that song i would agree yeah i'd agree so what have we got for track four we've got lemon and this is one of my current top five U2 songs. Was it one of your current top five U2 songs two weeks ago? Yes. Yeah. It, okay. pretty, it's always battling it pretty, out in the pretty top long, ten. Pretty long standing, would yeah. you say? Yeah. And this sounds like navel-gazing, perhaps, but it is quite interesting to see what kind of songs stand the test of time as your you know, your main favourites. So, obviously, we've mentioned other ones on other podcasts Um but Lemon's always in there for me because it's just so interesting. Um, it's quite a long song, but it never feels long to me. It's got this incredible shimmering kind of quality with the keyboards. And this always happens when we're trying to talk about our favourite songs. We end up climbing up and not being able to actually explain why they're good. Because Here comes the gush. I'm not going to gush about this song. Um, because it's not the kind of... It's not the sort of emotional roller coaster that something like... Unforgettable Fire is, for example. It's not a Ronan Keaton song. No, it's not. Um, what is it about this song? Why do you like it? Do you like it? I have always hated this song. Oh, what? Then I listened to it two weeks ago. And in preparation. And now it's your top for this podcast. Your top favorite song. And I love it. Oh, good. I do. I I I really like it. I think uh, it's one of those tracks that non-U2 fans w- will listen to once and then mercilessly. Take the piss, doing impressions of Bono with yeah, his fat lady singing. Yeah, Because you know, mm. if if you don't understand the context or what you two are trying to achieve, there, then it does look stupid and and just silly. In in, in you lo- sure you like the song? <laughs> but listening to it this time, um, I think the problem with the song is that the most memorable parts are so those falsetto bits that Bono is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of scat singing at the beginning and singing Lemon in a stupidly high vo- voice. But once once you look past that, there's actually a really nice melodic love song to be found. And You think, you, you think this is a love song then? You go with that? 
melancholic. Melancholic? Melon. Am I saying that right? That sounds re- wrong to me. Melancholic. Melancholic. Any word sounds weird if you say it a lot of times. Melancholic. So. Yeah. Yeah. Or lemoncholic. <laughs> Which I should have said in the. I'm supposed to be funny. But yeah, I think there is there is that sense. I mean, fans will know that the the song is tied to Bono uh, finding old footage of his of his mother in in a particular yellow dress. But all the way through, I think it does have those those lines that can be read in that sort of romantic fashion. I think that's just one aspect of it. Again, it's another song that isn't about one thing. Although Bono's presentation does annoy me a little bit here, I'm really really glad he went through this whole phase. Because it's probably my favourite incarnation of Bono, but he's really playful here, isn't he? Oh yeah, it's like this is the the Bono I wish I you know I wish I could be, the, the kind of tongue in cheek, cheeky, laughing at everything, um, pointing fun at the powerful. I like that idea, but I think on this song he just allows himself a little bit too much freedom. Hmm. I, I mean, I think the fr- that freedom and the contrast between Bono's really high-pitched, playful kind of voice. Again, it's it's the same contrast that exists in in Numb. I think it works really well for this for this particular song. Brian Eno is contributing backing vocals in in the background as well. Is he? Yeah, which I think really does lend to. Is it is it just him or is Edge also the? I think I think it's Edge as well. I think it's a it's a. Is a how I I did notice that harmonising uh, of the backing singers. Hmm. Um, but I thought it was just Bono and Edge but yeah, I really really like that I think that's what gives it, that kind of grounds it and makes that contrast really really clear I think I'm warming to Brian Eno oh good <laughs> um, one this is another occasion where we have a U2 song where I've misheard the lyric and I think particularly because we got into um, may into... I recommend an ear in aid um, <laughs> well I yeah, if it, I mean, it might be it might be useful to stop me making these kind of mistakes. I know a shop that you can go for. Oh yeah, what's it called? Bonavox. Good stuff. So the mishearing is, <laughs> I always heard this line as, okay, tell me, according to this song, Tyler, where does the day begin? Midnight. Midnight. Okay. Now I always heard factually correct. Yes, and that's true. Um, so I'm not disputing that fact. However, I always heard that as goodbye. So the line would be, goodbye is where the day begins. Now, I understand that's a really big mishearing, okay? It's not like, see, will die and live again, okay? As we discussed on the Unforgettable Fire podcast. But I always like that idea that goodbye is where the day begins. And I always had this idea of a couple and they leave. And the goodbye is where the day begins from whoever's left at home. Well, I think yours is more interesting. I mean, Bono's just stating facts. Yes. Uh, you have a, there's a concept to yours. Dawn breaks up precisely, you know this particular moment yeah no I, I, I like i like yours i like your version when will they consult me on the on their lyrics um but yeah i just i found that kind of interesting but the song kind of lends itself to those weird mishearings so if this was a more conventional u2 song i would have gone to the lyrics probably a lot sooner because it would stick out a lot more whereas this seems to fit with the weird atmosphere that's created by by lemon and i'm, I'm just gonna add this to lemon uh if you are critical of Adam Clayton at all, ever, listen to this song, because he nails this track. Hmm. That's just my little bit from 
the Adam apologist team over here. Well, Although I, I'm not, I, I'm I'm applauding Adam this week. The Adam applauder. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I think he acquits himself very well on this album, and we'll see more b- cracking bass lines throughout. <laughs> Stay far away, so close. Difficult to talk about this song, because I, I like it, and it's one of the f- very first songs that I really got into. Particularly from the 90s. This may have been the only track I really listened to from the 90s. Because hmm. uh, I was a little bit put off by uh, the sound of The Fly and anything from pop, because I, I just didn't understand music, and I, I was trying to make a stand against something that actually I, I really liked. But Stay is pretty much one of it's well it is the only song from this album that has carried on being played live they don't really play anything else no can you think of any recent examples well we we got a snippet of zeropa when we saw them live in london yeah on the most recent tour but so that was 2015 yeah but again that's it's just a snippet so that yeah you're right they're not coming out and playing babyface very often you know um and I think that's because this is the most conventionally structured of all the songs on the album. It's it's the one where, as we were saying before, Bono does have a very intimate singing voice on this album. But this is where he actually does bring the power back, I think. Um, yeah, this is one of those classic, well, more traditional at least, U2 anthems. Uh, the band here are doing what they did with albums like the Joshua Tree on songs like With or Without You. They're experimenting with different styles and different instruments, creating a song that sounds like you too, but with untraditional methods of creating Mm. music. So they're making their experimentation work for them rather than trying to fit into a certain genre. Yeah. So so it's an interesting song in that regard. I think this, this version of it as well is kind of underplayed I would like to see this, or rather this arrangement of the song. It sounds beautiful on acoustic, and I think I really understood and kind of fell in love with the song, if that's not too corny, from the live versions that have been acoustic. But I would like them to bring back this version. There's so many interesting choices that are made in the production of this song. And I think this is a song in which it sums up the album a little bit, because I think all the way through Zeropa, the exploring different feelings and what it is like to feel in a particular way rather than saying you should feel this way about this particular thing and Bono is inhabiting these different roles but not really telling us what to what to think about it so even a little tiny line like saying is that what it is when he you know after that line about not minding when you're when you're being hurt which is kind of catches that horrible ambivalence and duality of domestic abuse and those kind of horrible relationships that deteriorate but somehow stay together. Him saying, is that what it is? Just puts in the uncertainty there, which maybe was lacking from earlier you too. That, does that make any of that make sense? It does. But what, what feeling um, does this evoke in you? Um, I think you get a sense of addiction. Again, I think I've always read that. You say when he hits you, you don't mind. I've always read that as something to do more with drugs necessarily than a straight forward you know literal this is a relationship in which has deteriorated into violence well i get the idea of a hangover late night early morning yeah hungover full of regret um you know and feeling no no pun intended like you're at the end of the world mm. 
so that could be drugs or alcohol or a hangover from a relationship or mm. you know things things like that. But it's certainly a, a very vulnerable emotion that is evoked for me with yeah. this song. Uh, and it's strange for me to hold a song that is as popular as this song to hold it in such high regard. Yeah, Stay has a again, no pun intended, some a kind of staying power. Yeah, you can't you can't really put your finger on why you like it. It's just an interesting song to continue listening to. Well, I think that's that's why it stayed with you because you can go back to it each time, and it isn't just a set story. You know, it's something that that changes with each with each performance. Daddy's gonna pay for your crash car. Okay, this song is similar. It's similar in some ways to the way that the fly acts for Acton Baby for me. I think if you want one song that encapsulates the whole album, the fly does that for Acton Baby for me personally. I know you're not as big of a fan of that song as I am, um, but I think more than Zeropa, which is obviously the title track. I think this song really captures the whole album. It shows the kind of experimentation that they were doing, the sort of drum loops that they were using, the fact that it is a collage of all these different bits, the samples at the beginning, um, and, you know, kind of... Does that make sense? I mean, this song seems to encapsulate the entirety of of the album. It has a lot of pomp to it, but it also has interesting emotions explored as well. It starts with that Lenin-like parade music. Yeah. I don't know the, the the name of the actual music, but I think it um it actually this song also incorporates um MC nine hundred featuring Jesus as a sample in there. Yeah, I that's not a, a, an artist I'm familiar familiar with. Well, I went over I went over to YouTube and had a look at that, and I couldn't find the bit that they were talking about. So okay. I mean, that's that's right. So it's not obvious then. But I mean, I did actually, I did actually. For my sins, go on to Wikipedia to have a look at some of the um, the <gasps> different. Yes, that's right. I did. did I went to Wikipedia and <gasps> they 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 list some of the um, some of the sounds that make it here. So there's a Walkman rewinding, a Hitler Youth boy banging a bass drum uh, from the propaganda film uh, Triumph of the Will. There is a snippet of Lenny's. Uh, so it's Lenny. <laughs> Lenny. Lenny from Advice of Men. <laughs> Uh, Lenin's favorite songs, and yeah, as you were saying, the uh, MC nine hundred um, were there. So they are literally taking bits from other people's work and adding it to them, showing their kind of their influences, and that they are listening widely here. But the song itself is such a crazy song in terms of its sound. It's very difficult to know what's actually happening at various points. Well, as um previously mentioned on i think the rattling home podcast I we're think, being very self-referential this episode aren't we, we? we are yeah um i think this is one of the worst names of any song ever not just the u2 song wow i really don't just worse than woman fish it annoys me uh, they could have called it anything else but daddy's gonna pay for your crash car just <laughs> rubs me up the wrong way um why it's just too long. It's <laughs> I, I don't know what I don't like about it really, but it, it's all. I, so do you not like the line? Kind of gets my back up a little bit. So you don't like the line within the song either, then? No, I don't mind that. I just wish it wasn't called that. Okay, well, I'm putting you on the spot. 
what would you call this song instead? Just Daddy? Uh, gonna Pay, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Listeners, send in your suggestions on how we can rename Daddy's Gonna Pay for Your Crash Car. Someone start an e-petition and we'll uh, contact the band when we have 10,000 signatures. I'm not signing this. I like the name of the... Well, of the, of the I'll see if I can get 10,000 people to do that. Interesting. Um, so, what, so what else apart from the, the title? Um, it's one of Adam's coolest bass lines. Okay. So this song is supposed to satirise the supermodels who overnight decreed that you 2 were glamorous and sexy. No, this isn't a a, a, a very short a scene I that I'm familiar with. Yeah, I, I, apart from myself and you, and maybe one or two other friends, um, we, I, I've never heard anybody else describe you two as sexy in or what was the other one glamorous in any other way or any other form. So maybe this happened. I think they were sexy at this time. For a very brief window, I think. <laughs> but I still think of you two as, as very shy boys. Uh, Bono, of course, being married to Ali, would never look at another woman. No. Uh, Edge has just found um, his belly-dancing wife Yeah. at this point. I mean, so she was also a choreographer as well. I don't want to, I don't want to just re- say she was just a belly dancer. No, but she's... Uh, uh, if, if supermodels did come up to you two, even at this point, I can't imagine them being very cool. Well, one supermodel did. Well, yeah, okay. But that's Adam, and Adam is... Okay, he is a fox. Yeah, and she might have just looked at the Acton Baby cover. Adam is like a fine wine. He only gets better with age. <laughs> uh, he, he looks he looks great these days. Well, the, the Adam applauder are in, in full force here. It, it, remember like in Elevation where he looked like Eric Clapton? <laughs> <laughs> he did. He had a sort of granddaddy air about him as well on Elevation. Yeah, I know what you mean. He's. I, I like the Adam that sort of rediscovered his punk rock side that we've seen recently. Yeah, he's so much cooler now. No one was describing them as sexy and glamorous at that point. No one. Okay, so circuitously, how is this related to... I, okay, so, so it's, it's a satire that, then? Yeah, this, this is a satire on, on that um, event happening, which yeah. I don't, personally don't. Um, but do you get the do you get that impression listening to this song? Because I don't. I, I, I don't get the impression that it's a satire on supermodels. I get the impression that it's... It's a, it's a satire on spoilt teenagers more than anything. Yeah, I do get that. I, I mean, I do, I'm reminded annoyingly of, you know, the super sweet uh, 16th program. I, I almost wrote that down for my yeah. notes. That's exactly what I was thinking about it. So, I mean, it works in that sense. And I guess um, there might be that kind of element perhaps summed up by this, this that kind of culture. Um, but that's the, the feeling I get through this song. And again... We reach a kind of a moment of tension or contradiction in you two because we do have a multi, a multi, a multi-million dollar act, you know, a business that is you two, you know, kind of poking fun at capitalism and holds into it, and perhaps there is some might say there is a level of hypocrisy there about that. Well, particularly knowing what we know about Adam and Naomi Campbell. Well, yeah, I guess I guess so. Um, do you ever think Adam walked into the studio and went, do you mind if we awfully don't put that track on the album because, um, well, Naomi doesn't like it. <laughs> I don't think Adam would do something as dastardly as that, particularly when he's got such a cool bass line on this, on this uh, song. And 
I mean, I want to say it's his bass line, you know, the boom 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 all the way through, but it's really difficult to to actually say what, what I struggle with that. Is, is what here. Yeah. And I wrote down when I was doing my notes for this. I wrote down I don't know what is going on here when I was listening to it, and then when I looked over at um, a quote from Flood, he basically said the same thing. I've got it here. So. But for other reasons, there are so many sonic things on that track that if I detail what was what was doing what, you wouldn't believe what was going on. So, I mean, that's why I think this track sums up the album for me because well, the groove is kind of mechanical. Yeah. Like, uh, one question I was going to ask you later on is, where's Larry on this album? I think he's he's contributing the loops in the in the same way that we discussed about Acton Baby. He puts down the loops, and then people might be sketching out ideas on their own. You know, Edge might be in the studio working on that. So these are definitely must, Larry's loops, I think. It must have been a frustrating album for Larry, though. I don't get the sense of that from this record as much as on Acting Baby because they'd actually been able to convince him that this was a good route to go down, you know. Um, but we won't be needing you for another four years. Yeah. <laughs> you just sit back and uh, we'll let the machines do the work. But anyway, to sum up, uh, Daddy's going to play for your crash car. Bit lame and uninteresting. No, that's not the sum up. Some days are better than others. Well, we were just speaking about cool bass lines, and here's another one where Adam has knocked it out of the park. The song pretty much begins with, with Adam's bass line, and I think this is such a classic that's often overlooked. It's got a kind of... I don't know, I get a Beatles vibe from this song, I think. Does that make Interesting. sense? Interesting. I didn't I didn't get that. Um, okay. Maybe just in the choruses. It seems quite jangly and and fun and happy, which I noticed a lot of U two albums on this. Like similar like going back uh, but changing certain sounds. So it, it rang true. I th- I know I thought of October the song at one point. Hmm. Um but I, I d- certainly didn't get a Beatles impression. I think it's just the the chorus when that jangly guitar comes in, and again, this is another occasion similar to Zuropa, where as someone who likes to mess around with the guitar, I really don't know what Edge is is doing here to make his um his his guitar make these incredible you know kind of sounds. It's some sort of you know additional harmonizer or something like that. But the creativity of the Edge is so important on this album, and I'm going to gush about. The edge, as you know, the edge enthusiast, but people who criticize Edge, and it's, it's fine to criticize if you don't really like him, but they sometimes overplay the whole effects, you know, the idea that he can't play because he uses effects. The genius of being able to make interesting, unique sounds should really be appreciated as something that's just an extension of the guitar. And to, yeah. to try and say you shouldn't be using that many effects, it's just it's such a boring criticism. It's that idiot shouting at you know, with Bob Dylan for going electric. Yeah. With Judas. Um, so, I mean, how, so are you a fan of this song or not? I've not really, uh, I've not really asked how you feel about it. Um, right. So just looking at my notes, um, I loved the bass loop uh, interspersed with Eno's um, erratic synth. Uh, is this song supposed to be funny? Um, a, a little bit. I mean, there's the... Because it isn't. Well, there's, I think there's humour in the fact that Bono sets up a very obvious rhyme and then, you know, more force than is necessary. He's, you know, he sort of, you know, goes off on a tangent there when you would expect him to make the rhyme. That's funny, in a way. I mean, I, I don't go to you no, for humour. 
No, I don't, and I don't think Bono's a very funny person anyway. He he's never had me rolling in the aisles when I've gone watching him. Mm. Um, he's irritated me. They they do have a sense of humour in that comes across in the in a lot of they albums do, but it, like it it can't be forced. And some something like a song where you know they've re- recorded it many many times and really worked on it, the humour just is eroded away by that process. Yeah. So what line do you think of, or what part of the song do you think is is them trying to um, be funny? Uh, does, or is that, it just a stance? Th- that line, it, you're a bit of a baby, you know. Like, but I think he's referring to himself in that line. It's just uh, all, all of it. I didn't write any specifics down, um, but I think this is just another example of you two needing to reel in the extravagance. Hmm. I like the extravagance on this song. I think that it sounds. I mean, it is a little bit like a, a hangover song in itself, or just a what the hell is going on with this day kind of song, which I, which I like. I think it really sums it up and the music reflects that. There's that weird section where it, rhythmically it, it doesn't exactly, in. It doesn't take you anywhere. It doesn't improve your day. It just, you're, you're still having a crap day, even after listening to this song. I think it, It's not I, like a beautiful day where you can, you know, it can amp you up and just yeah. force a bit of positivity on you. Think of the premiership. Um, <laughs> I... I think it's. I think it's. A, an, it improves my day when I when I hear it. I think, um, and I think it does. It does take you on a weird journey. The the solo to this. Maybe this is again. It's the different focuses that we have. You're maybe coming at it this from a different angle, but the. I don't even know if it's a guitar, but the the solo that rips through the middle of the song. You know that kind of static. Yeah. Crunchies. You know, just tears through the middle of the song. It's a texture we haven't heard yet on the album. That kind of thing is is brilliant, and I I want that extravagance if it leads to this kind of this kind of thing. Maybe some songs are just better than others. Then, yeah, uh, like the next song. So let's move on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to take this one. This is the first time. Uh, I think this is a welcome breath of fresher on an album that exceeds in its confusing, overstimulated and at times over eccentric essence. Over centric? Over eccentric. Oh right. It's I overly see. eccentric. Okay, so it's honest, it's beautiful, and it's a ballad. Um it's so far removed from the sensibility of the rest of the record that it it's an example of how good you two actually are. Like, take away all the gimmickry, all the TVs, all the trabants flying around, all the costumes, and at the heart, you have a very heartful, soulful band. The same band that dominated the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, it's like they're still there waiting to be wanted again. They're, they're yeah. waiting in the wings. They're letting themselves do all this stuff, but at the heart, they still want to be doing all the stuff that they were doing in the 80s with the Joshua Tree. Yeah. And, and, and to a lesser extent, Rattle and Hum. I think that's a really, really good point. I, would, I totally agree with that. When I listened to this today, I heard Running to Stand Still. Uh, you know, when those when those piano keys are coming through, there's nothing ironic and postmodern about that bit of the song um, or the song in general. It is, I mean, I've got similar kind of notes here, I guess. I've said it's very simple, but it's very elegant. Some of the poetry in this song is... Is, is lovely there is i'd say there's an odd the only bit of, of kind of you know um 
studio stuff that I thought was interesting that maybe does tie it still to the album and doesn't make it stick out. I agree, it is a, quite a different song to the rest of the album, but it isn't misplaced. I definitely would not want to suggest that. But that. No. Um, and, and, and do you know what? We haven't really talked about the track listing at all. No. But maybe that just means we're really happy with the track listing. I would say so, yeah. It seems. I think this is such a cohesive um, album in general. But the thing that makes this work and cohere with the rest of the album is this odd like kind of sound that is in the background for the rest of the song it's a little bit menacing but you know it's kind of this sort of a sort of this this sound i can't really describe it it's not a, a hum but a synth sound that's just in the background yeah kind of a very very subtle sound. yeah and that maybe is what does it it's for me this is another song that signifies how much of a personal album this is i think this is about Bono's relationship with his brother. I think I think I think I'm right in that assumption. That Bono's brother is older than him. Um, I I hadn't read that, but I'm sure it's um, um no, but it's 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 about personal relationships. It's not about like when you sing about love. Everybody, everybody has been in love or experienced that to a certain extent. Not everybody has. Um, a brother and not uh, not everybody has tight family relationships so this is um certainly a more personal insular kind of song it's certainly not a, a stadium rocker although i think this would probably do pretty well well it was annoyingly neglected i suppose in terms of um in terms of you know the the zoo tv performance this would make a great final song in the place of love is blindness I disagree with that, but I would like it. On I like that. Love Is Blindness, mm. but I, but if they wanted to switch it around, I'd be yeah, happy yeah, to see this work. live. There's a song which I would definitely replace this song with, but we won't get into that just yet. On the um, I, I, yeah, it is it is an intimate song. Again, we've said this album has a lot more intimacy to its sound rather than the big gestures that are being made um, elsewhere in U2's discography. I think one of the most interesting things about this song for me is that. It references, and this is the main thing that I get from it, uh, and this is probably uh, thanks to uh, thanks to being dragged to church every week. But the when I was younger, but this is about a reference to the prodigal son, that idea that the the father is showing the son, you know, all of the um, all of the rooms and the mansions, that kind of thing, and he's saying, you know, you can you can have all this. And, I mean, it's not as direct as the Judas connection in Until the End of the World, but the son figure in this, he leaves by the back door and he throws away the key and he refuses this. Now, Bono said earlier on in Zeropa, the, the song Zeropa, you know, I have no religion. And when, when he's discussed this song in the past, Bono has said it's about losing your faith. That's a, a direct quote. So it's not, I think, about Bono becoming an atheist at all. No. But I think it's a song about the idea of losing faith and that that doesn't have to necessarily be a bad thing. So for the first time, when he's talking about this, it's about a change in direction, a, a first time feeling a different kind of feeling. And to me, the song ends on this triumphant note. You know, you've got Bono back in this kind of falsetto range, the piano kicking in in this triumphant way. And I, I love that there's a song about that in U2's catalogue. It shows development. It shows an ability to look at things from different perspectives, even if that's not necessarily how they're feeling personally. Yeah, I, I agree with all, all that, and I think that's quite re insightful about this song. But I mentioned Bono's brother, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we've mentioned Bono's father and mother, like before. Yeah. But picture picture being Bono's brother or Bono's father, mm-hmm. or a relative to the band, not a wife or a, or a child, but a, a relative who's seen these four people grow up in Dublin and now they're here. Yeah. You're kind of left behind, and you're watching with no control whatsoever, watching your brother or your son go through these trials and tribulations of being a rock star. Mm. That's, that must be... Surreal? Surreal um, and almost uncomfortable if mm. you see if you see someone you know so well not being themselves. And, and, and like Zoo TV and this album, An Act Baby, that must have been like, what are you doing? Probably more stuff, so than Rattle and Hum. And also stuff the band have no... Sorry to interrupt, but the, the, the stuff that the band have no control over. So, or less control over when, you know, they become media figures, their image is taken and presented in a particular way. And just that sheer saturation of, you know, seeing Bono all over everything. But I'm very much reminded of Killing Bono, the film at the moment, but that's kind of an aside. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I did actually read an, um, an interview with Bono's brother, who... At least at one point owned a, a very high class restaurant in in Dublin. Hmm. Uh, it's like a, a hot spot for the celebrities to go to. Uh, and he was saying, "Oh, I still meet up with Bono once a week when he's in the country, and we just go down to the local pub and have a pint." Hmm. Now that's the kind I like that kind of idea, but it's so far away from the ideas of the Fly and Mister McFisto and um, Disco Ball Man, Mirror Ball Man. Every yes. time, every time, two for two. Uh, <laughs> So it's great that there is still this is just a character, this is a gimmick, this is a persona mm. that that they are still those young lads. Well, not young anymore, not as young as they were. Yeah. Age makes you older. <laughs> but there's still that sense that sensibility of who they are. One thing I wanted to say about this song, the last thing I wanted to say um, on my account is, I noticed something that I don't think I've noticed consciously about this song any time I've listened to it before than, than the, when I listened to it just for, for this podcast. And is when he says, I left by the back door, he hits, I think Edge hits a, a note which is slightly discordant or it just, it, it, it's so particular to that, that moment. And you two don't usually do that thing of having, you know, the song linked so clearly to the lyrics, you know, with a, you know, with a, a reference point, but, I just think it's fascinating, and I'll, I know I will notice that now every time I listen to the song. Yeah, I know. I think I know what you mean. Yeah, it's you've heard it as well. Yeah, I, I love this track. I, one, of, it is one that I forget about, but it's actually one of the only songs I can play on guitar because it's <laughs> two chords and the truth. Dirty day, Tyler. What are your thoughts? Screaming synthy build. It's very reminiscent of the intro to the title track and track one on the album Zeropa. Uh, this is—is is this supposed to be the last track? Because I, 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 when you get that like book ending of sounds, I, I normally find that that's the beginning and the—that's the start and the end of the album. Whereas here, there is one more track, but do you think the Wanderer was added afterwards? Um, I know that the Wanderer was something that was never entirely certain to make the cut of the album because Bono actually recorded versions of the vocals 
before they secured Johnny Cash. Well, let's not get into the Wanderer. True, um, but but I, so I don't so I don't know because um, we will discuss that. Yep, momentarily. Um, so I, I know what you're saying. It feels it feels more like a natural closer to the album, perhaps. Uh, does it? I don't know. Um, I'm going to make my feelings pretty clear early on with this. I do not like Dirty Day. Okay. And you were saying that it has this like build up. There's nice sections towards the end, you know, when they let it off the leash a bit, and Bono's you know going hey and all that other kind uh, of and stuff. The, the <laughs> days, days, days run away like horses over uh, the hill. I, I like that image. Uh, well, it was Nick from uh, uh, Bukowski. Yeah. So Bukowski. Whatever. Um, Bukowski. Bukowski. Yeah. Okay, fine. And you've studied him. I haven't, so I've not got. Yeah, the, he's really, uh, he's really good. I recommend the Post Office to anybody. I think that's probably one of his most famous books. Uh, well, I know that a lot of people say, "Oh, yeah, it's like that one book that Bukowski wrote, rewrote twelve times." So apparently, he doesn't vary very much. I don't know. I can't comment. Um, um and see, you see, I didn't know of the Bukowski connection until I'd actually listened to this the last time mm-hmm. before reviewing it. So it was just a little bit of extra research. And do you know about how Bono actually got in contact with the author? I imagine it wasn't hard. Well, yeah, it was... Find him at a bar, normally. Well, it does involve drinking, because Bono and Sean Penn, of all people, were out um, drinking, apparently, till six or so in the morning. This is another occasion where I've got a a story... Let me stop you there. Bono and Sean Penn. How how does that make, at, at the same time, no sense at all and complete sense. I think. Do, they, do you know what I mean by yeah, that? Yeah, I think they oddly look a bit similar as well. No, you don't think? No, they're both good-looking guys, but okay. Well, I, I wouldn't confuse them. No, I wouldn't. It's just there's a few people who, in my mind, look a little bit similar to Bono. Robin Williams. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like he really. I always thought he if which is crazy because Robin Williams is older than Bono. Mm. Um, I always thought that he could have done a good Bono in a biopic. <laughs> maybe for the later stages when Bono's in a retirement home or something like that but yeah. um, sadly not now um, and uh, another one who at the opposite end of the uh, age spectrum I think Andrew Lincoln from The Walking Dead would make a good sort of 30s Bono well um, put the glasses on you have discovered on. my Achilles heel though because I don't watch a lot of TV or film so I okay. don't know who that is okay well I guess I'll throw it out to uh, any review to listeners who else should play Bono or could have played Bono at various points in you know? In the, the guy film. in Killing Bono did a really good job. Yeah, he was great. He yeah. was great. Love that film. Um, back to this though. Yeah, I, I basically do not think this song is very good because it does not develop. It's all the way through. Okay. And right. that basic thing doesn't change, and it irritates me. It irritates me about Hawk Moon, and it irritates me about this. I want development. Okay. Right. So. I'll just go through my notes very, really quickly. I really love Bono's f- falsetto vocals, and they are far more restrained in this song, which is a, a good thing. The way Edge plays um, Dirty Day is very rem- reminiscent of Until the End of the World. Edge starts playing over Adam at one point, which Adam's doing a you know good job on the bass, mm. but Edge just starts completely mimicking it. And it's louder than Adam, so you actually can't hear Adam underneath Edge. This all sounds like bad features of the song. Well, it, well, that was a feature that annoyed me, because, as you know, I am the Adam apologist. Applauder. 
and uh, and the Adam Applauder, you are the Edge enthusiast. Yep. So I would like an apology <laughs> from, from me. Yeah, uh, <laughs> from you on behalf of you and the Edge. I am not Edge's representative. Playing over Adam when he sounds really good. Uh, I refuse on behalf of the Edge. Um, because I have nothing to. I mean, Edge apologizes for the song though, because it's not a particularly good song, and he really should be saying, "Guys, we need some more chords here, because we've not got enough chords in this song." <laughs> what? Well, anytime anyone says chords now, I think of BB King. Well, that's who could have helped with that. Oh no, he couldn't, could he? <laughs> no, no, he. The worst person to ask that, in fact. Terrible at chords. Terrible. Terrible at chords. Um. <laughs> Okay, so any more? Any more? Um, no, I don't. I don't mind this song. Uh, I don't mind "Dirty Day" as much as you do. I like it, and I'm interested to go and listen to it with Charles Bukowski in mind. Really fascinating, um, down and out writer. I think it'd be fair to fair to say his view on the world is very gritty, mm. um, boozy. very much like elements of this song. It's a, yeah. it's a good comparison. This could be another another one of our hangover songs. I know we've mentioned, obviously, trying to throw your arms around the world some days. The, 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 the bit at the end, the days, 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 run away like horses over the hill, that's far too fun to sing when you're hungover. But it does really capture the fact that when you are hungover, often the day does just you know fly away straight away and you've achieved nothing. Or indeed when you're recording a podcast. <laughs> yes, that can also happen. Um, you've, I'm glad you've reminded me of... Um, I'm going to say the author because I'm not going to keep, repeatedly keep saying his name incorrectly. Okay. okay. Um, because we didn't get to the conclusion of my Sean Penn anecdote. Okay. And this is not my anecdote. It's from um, the book Into the Heart by Niall or Neil. I'm not sure which one it is. Uh, Stokes, excellent book. Gather round, boys and girls. You're going to hear a story. Yeah, which has already been started, then aborted, and doesn't have a good conclusion. <laughs> okay, so Sean Penn and Bono walk into the, walk into the bar and then don't leave until about six in the morning, okay? And Bono mentions that he is interested in that author's particular works, and Sean Penn gets out his phone, and they phone him up and get him on the phone straight away, okay? And so they actually get to speak to Charles directly on the phone. And First name terms. Yeah. Um, and the I think the main thing that Bono took away from the conversation is that Bono's... Uh, not Bono. Charles Bukowski's wife really fancied Bono at that particular time and basically said she would like to sleep with him and that was the main thing that they took away from that conversation. She's going to put this out there. Not an attractive woman. <laughs> okay, well, that's uh, uh, neither she, here nor there, is it? Well, no, she... Think of... I, I'm not having descriptions of... Presumably she was... Because Bukowski's quite old, isn't he, at this point? He's dead. No, at this point in the story. Oh, right, this yeah. great anecdote. So... I don't think we should be commenting on on the appearance of a of a you know an elderly woman. Well, all I'm going to say is the female alcoholic at your local pub. So we arrive at the Wanderer, and the sky is not blood red anymore; it's atomic. How do you feel about this song, Tyler? This is a a hidden gem. This is. And this is a U2 song. Some people might think it's more of a bonus track because Bono doesn't sing on it. Mm. We'll get to that. But this is a hidden gem in terms of U2 songs. It's up there with the likes of Heartland for me. Wow. And it, anyone who listened to our last podcast will know how much I think of that song. Johnny Cash's deliberately nonchalant vocals 
just make this song sound incredible because he's he's affecting the kind of voice that Edge has on Numb. They're two very different songs and obviously different effects on the voices, but it, it's got that very matter-of-fact feel to it. Mm. Uh, it's, very, it's definitely what you say about, everyone says about Johnny Cash, steady as a freight train. It's got that definite quality to it. I, I say it's not as deadpan as, as Edge, so it's still quite rich in this feeling but it is i know what you're saying yeah it, it's it's not as emotive as it, it would be if bono sang it yeah it'd be weird if bono sung it knowing um it. Yeah. Wh- what this song really is is a, a, just a culmination of everything working really really well you've got the electronic beats the uh, loops of electronic beats um, and of synth that the screeching guitar in the background larry playing electric drums um then you have the more classical tone of Cash's guitar and Bono and the Edge on backing. It's just, it's an exceptional example of constructing a song and bringing different elements in and producing something fantastic. Yeah, and and the elements might not necessarily sound that great on paper. So if you say, oh yeah, Adam Clayton, this incredible bass player who's got so many you know bases that you could choose from or you know let's put him and on like a tiny you know almost like child synth kind of sound just to get that really corny you know, sounds so good though oh my 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 bass that i was doing just then thank you Tyler. <laughs> um no i can't it's as we always say it's harder to talk about the songs you really like so let's talk about how the song came to be sure um this is a u2 um this is penned by u2 particularly bono yeah the engineers really wanted bono to sing this song on the album and have the johnny cash version saved as a b-side but bono really stood up for himself and said no it's gonna. It's gotta. It's gotta be Johnny. Johnny's version is much, much better. Mm. And it, it. I'm so glad that's true because I would hate to have discovered the Johnny Cash version on a B side and then every time I listened to this album, had a subpar Bono version. Yeah. So I'm glad it worked out like this. Yeah. And it's, do you know what I always like about this? How it says um, starring Johnny Cash on the on the label. You know, rather than yeah. featuring. It's it really. I mean, again, this sort of goes back into the whole kind of, you know, the aspect of uh, film that seems to crop up on, on Zeropa and TV. It, you know, it really does seem a theatrical song. There is a little story within it about, you know, um, this wandering. I think it's a preacher, you know, wandering around and in this some sort of, you know, atomic age. It's it's incredible. And it's such a weird idea that they picked up Johnny Cash, who goes back so far and just drop him amid Zeropa in this in, in crazy world that they've created and yet it works so well it, it yeah it works it doesn't it, it doesn't sound strange uh, to have it finish off the album um and just think how much bono's learned in like a four year period from rattle and hum when he's trying yeah. to hang the with the with the big boys with the Dylans and the BB Kings put this next to love rescue me and it's so obvious which is the more interesting creative and successful song yeah and bono has taken a step back and 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 realized that this his his pride is in the song not in singing the song yeah 
So he's been able to step back um, and relegate himself to backing vocals and let Johnny Cash just make this uh, a song that Bono perhaps at that point couldn't have he couldn't have done what Johnny Cash did for this song. Yeah, I think that that's really true. It does take a lot of. Um, he shows a lot of humility, humility and yeah. a, a lot less ego, um, which is a complete juxtaposition from the Fly and Mephisto. Yeah, it's a big contrast there between the kind of characters that Bono is is portraying and 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 this. I, I've got to admit, when I first heard it, this is almost. I mean, it made the cut on my stolen burned copy. Um, but I just didn't really understand who Johnny... I didn't have, understand the gravity of Johnny Cash, and I just thought it was slightly odd. Yeah. But I but I love this song now. I I get what they were kind of trying to, to do with this song. And I think it was interesting, you said before, um, and this was a question I was going to ask you, actually, is this a Cash song, or is this a U2 song? Is it both? Is it neither? What is it? It's a U2 song starring Johnny Cash. Yeah. Maybe that's the, maybe that is the best way of putting it the way yeah. that they the way that they um they did originally and that's the that is the better way to to sort it's to, like um you know Johnny Cash covered Nine Inch Nails Hurt and it's hard to go back and listen to the original Hurt even I've had heard Nine Inch Nails fans like Trent Reznor for example example he said yeah it's no longer his song prefers the Johnny Cash version mm. there are a few other examples Noel Gallagher said the same thing of Ryan Adams cover of Wonderwall. Yeah. Uh, Bono can't take this song back now. It 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 wouldn't sound right, and and there's no way for it to sound right. As good as it could be, there's 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 no way for it to sound right if Bono starts singing this song. It it, it has to have Johnny Cash on vocals, which it's, is nice because then it means that this song is kind of preserved for this time and it won't get wheeled out. I mean, yeah, obviously, it's time capsule. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not. It isn't the kind of song that they would want to wheel out. You know, because it's not a. a a single or anything like that, but no, it is great it, that it's it's here. It's a great closer to a very insular, uh, not for public, um, not for public play album, and I think that's what we're dealing with with Zeropa. And now it's time for everybody's favourite feature. I fell into the sweetest thing. I think that was good. Yeah. That was your that was your Johnny Cash. That was my Johnny Cash as a tribute to the late great Johnny Cash. Excellent. My sweetest thing for this album is pretty obvious from I think anyone who's been listening uh, as to which way I'm going to forward these. Lemon, I love it, and I love its legacy as well. I love the fact that a lemon, you know, lemons are sort of synonymous with you two now. Yeah, yeah. And whenever I pick up a lemon and bite into its <laughs> delicious flesh, I think about you uh, two. My, this is a tough one for me. I really did love. I can listening. see you scanning through this. Are you still, are you literally doing this on the hop. I'm literally looking through what I think is my favorite. This is a review to first, a live selection of a sweetest thing. Although I think it's good because it shows how these always change. You know. Yeah, I think I know what it is, but I just. I mean, suspense is interesting, but come on. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely, my sweetest thing for this album is the Wanderer. Oh, cool! Um, I, I just, I just really love the song. I always have done. And why, while I have really begun to love a lot more of this album through reviewing it, 
Um, there's nothing I really, really hate on this. But the one, the Wanderer is still. It's just a, it's a huge, huge peak mm. on this album. And now it's time for everybody's dirty day. <laughs> Who is that? Don't know. Okay, generic singer. Um, my dirty day is appropriately the dirty day because it's such a dull song. Um, well, fair enough. I, I have to go with some days are better than others. Oh, that's a that's a shame. Interesting though. Yeah, I I I I got the least pleasure out of that song. Um, but I look go. You've heard our thoughts. My advice would be to go for a walk, get some really good headphones, and just let this album take you somewhere. Yeah, it it's a very personal album. It's pretty much the only album you can say that about in U2's whole back catalogue. So just put your headphones on and go and just go and listen to this because it's really really good and it will. So you get slightly slightly angry. <laughs> no, no, it's so it's so good. Like it had so so many powerful experiences listening to this just just going for a walk yeah it's it's a very personal album and i I think you'll all love it i i think it was great to rediscover it for this i i I misunderstood this this album yeah it it, uh, people try to view it as you know you know with the rest of you two the rest of the back catalogue but it really does stand alone yeah johnny what are your closing thoughts on zeropa well, we always ask whether this is a flipping album or not. <clears throat> Does it cohere? Is it just a collection of songs? You know, and I think this categorically is a full album. It deserves its to be seen as such, and not as just overspill or runoff from Acton Baby, which I I love Acton Baby. It's my favourite album, but Zeropa can stand on its own two feet. I think. I think it definitely is a flipping album. What do you think? I think it's a really, really good album. I can see why many U2 fans wouldn't think it is. It's a good album, but perhaps it's not a great U2 album, if you can make that distinction. It just depends what you're looking for, I guess. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I have one other question for you. Mm -hmm. Do you wish U2 tried to incorporate more of these songs in a live setting? Yeah, I think so. But I think, to be honest, that would be my... When I if to the question, would you like you two to play more deep cuts? I'm instinctively going to say, yeah. All right. If they were here with us now, yes. and it was a small like listening, yes. right in this fantasy land, I would I would love that. That would be that would be great. I would be really interest, interested to hear some of these songs in that setting. Yeah. But if I see them in a, in a in an arena or a, a stadium, I just don't think they well, they work in that that kind of environment. Yeah, well, I mean, we've said all the way through these are more intimate songs. And, I mean, I guess that would be an appropriate point to bring in my quote from Edge um, about this album, looking back on it. So, he's saying, we didn't create hits, we didn't deliver the songs, and what would Sgt. Pepper be without the pop songs? I'm kind of uh, paraphrasing here. And I think that was Edge, may have been Bono. But Edge definitely said that he didn't think the songs were potent, further stating... I never thought of Zeropa as anything more than an interlude, but a great one as interludes go. By far our most interesting. Uh, and Clayton adds that it's an odd record and a favourite of his. So it's kind of... It's sad that they think about it in that way. And they are a band that do 
I mean, they've got so many hits. In a way, that's kind of a problem. Because when you two fans come out from a gig, a lot of them, a sizable chunk of them, will be wanting to hear classics, you know. And obviously, they're gaining new uh, fans every generation. So they are going to still want to see Pride, whereas you and I don't really want to see certain songs live anymore. I think that can be combated by just doing a different set list every night. Now, I know that's, that's you know, a huge ask, but there are, there are acts that do that. Yeah, or, or, or change four or five tracks. Yeah, but I can't. I can see why it w- would be harder work for the band to get that many songs, you know, polished scratch, and yeah. ready to perform. But it's just far more interesting if you don't know what you're getting. Like when we we were really excited to go and see uh, what was the last tour called? Uh, in songs of Innocence or the Innocence Tour or something like Innocence that. Innocence and Experience Tour. It was pretty. Yeah, it was pretty just. Went with the album name. The excitement for that was that you didn't know what you were going to get. You, yeah. you were going to get a lot. Obviously, you're going to get Streets, and you're going to get With or Without You and One and Pride. Obviously, you're going to get those songs. Gloria came out of nowhere, which I was really happy about. Yeah, it, it's just... And Zeropa. It's nice when you when they start playing these songs. It's like, oh my... Because it, it, it is, it's personal. Hmm. It's, it's not just, let's try and please everybody. It's, okay, we are going to... Um, we're going to isolate a few of the fans when we play this song. But the ones that know it are really going to love it. Yeah. And the ones that don't know it aren't going to mind that much. Or they might really like it and go back, you know, when they get home, research it, you know, and find it. Yeah. Maybe maybe a potential solution then, given what we've said about the album and given this kind of difficulty then about people expecting a certain, you know, kind of percentage of hits and things like that. Maybe it would be good if they would revisit Zeropa in a more intimate environment, play something, a very small gig, maybe not even a gig, just a small session, and then go back to the album. Because it's not further away that Zeropa was just bundled into the Acton Baby remastered collection. You know, like when they did uh, From the Sky Down? I've now watched that, by the way, okay, and, and loved that. Um, from the Sky Down, they went back to Hansa Studios, uh, which is a ballroom-esque yeah, setting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we should suggest that they do a similar kind of thing, similar kind of setting not in Hansa, maybe a ballroom in Wigan something like that and because we are the architect of these plans uh, Bono, Edge, Adam and Larry should give us a couple of tickets you know, just a bit of free merch and t-shirts maybe (laughs) no, no, that's not cool (laughs) Um, and they should do that for us in our hometown, because we've, 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 these podcasts, we try to keep them as short as possible, but we've been in this studio for four hours. Yeah. Four hours. Like, so if you think we're going too long, like, believe me, we, we're, we're cutting this down. <laughs> okay. So what's the, what's the closing thought with that? Well, then? well, because we've invested so much of our time trying, trying to do well, this. We deserve a gig. Yeah. This in... podcast by fans for fans. Um, we deserve an intimate gig where they play Zeropa to us. Yeah, why not? It's it's the least the band can do if you <laughs> aren't listening to this. So Bono, the next time you're in Wigan, uh, oh yeah, every every other week, give us a call. Okay, so it's that time again. There is nothing else to say than to say thank you very much for listening. And next week we will be back with what I think is probably going to be quite a raucous podcast. 
when we review U2's ninth album, Pop. Excited about that one, Johnny? I think I might pop with enthusiasm about doing that review. I think it'll be a great review, to be honest. I think there'll be a lot of um, interesting opinions and contrasts on that one. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been Tyler. And I'm still Johnny. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Hi there, thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch, please contact us on facebook.com forward slash review 2 you or on soundcloud.com forward slash review 2 or search for the Review 2 podcast on iTunes. You can also email us at review2contact at gmail.com. Please like, comment and subscribe. Thank you.